The Eyes to the Left. Hello and welcome to Eyes to the Left, the Mirror's political podcast. My name is Jason Beatty and I'm joined today by Claire Ainsley from the Joseph Roundry Food Foundation. And we're here because Claire's written a book called The New Working Class, How to Win Hearts, Minds and Votes. And Claire's going to talk to me about who are the new working class, what does it mean in terms of the politicians, political parties, journalists even, policy makers, and why it's such a big issue, uh, particularly off the back of Brexit and the elections coming up this week even, on the next general election. So it's a, it's a fascinating subject, and so Claire, welcome, and if you could just explain who is this? What sector are we talking about? We know what a traditional working class mm. is. We know the old John Cleese kind of Ronnie Corbett sketch. Where, you know, I, I'm, I look down on you, you look down on me, etc., etc. But what's the new working class? So thank you. It's uh, great to be here. Uh, the new working class is really different to the traditional working class. And a lot of the time when polit- politicians don't tend to talk about class very often, and on the occasions when they do, they tend to be talking about the traditional working class. But this new working class is really different. It's not people who are employed in the manufacturing industry. It would tend to be people who are on low to middle incomes, who might be earning anything up to a, up to a median income, might be employed doing jobs like uh, in the service sector, so hospitality, retail, catering, that kind of thing. So it's very kind of everyday jobs in that sense. And the average income is about £26,000 a year. It's about £26,000, pounds a year so it's you know it's a pretty crude line isn't it but it's it's a way of saying that actually there are millions of people up and down the country who are employed on uh, those kinds of jobs or they might be doing two jobs to make ends make ends meet um, and they're people on low to middle incomes um, one of the important points about this new working class isn't just the job they do and also lots of people these are more likely to be women than they are men these days many people wouldn't define themselves primarily through work at all so they might be a mum and they might have a part-time job uh, so actually those old traditional definitions aren't necessarily as useful to us it's also multi-ethnic it's diverse the image of a traditional working class person 40 years ago might have been as you describe it that that sort of probably a man probably white maybe a flat cap maybe doing a a job in manufacturing that's really changed and it's really different it's much much more diverse these days yeah we'll we'll come on to to, to the multi-ethnic aspect that later was very interesting things to talk about that particularly off the back of, of, of Windrush uh, but what strikes me having read this book is and it's extraordinarily um, kind of fact rich book but um, also quite bravely you set out possible solutions as well um, you know most people it's very easy to kind of kind of complain about something mm-hmm. or identify it but you go one step further and you under various headings whether it's work the economy welfare you, you, or education, which is something else I'd quite like to talk to you about, it, it, you, you say, look, this is what we can do. But what really struck me, was, um, first of all, was was uh, this new working class, was a word you use is precariat. They are in precarious jobs. So it's mm. part of the people in the, in the gig economy. Uh, and, and the second bit which struck me was the disconnect between the politicians and this new cohort. And there seems to be... Um, a, a problem here specifically with actually how politicians one talk to these people you said you use the phrase they need to get first-hand understanding mm. and, and and two if they do talk to them how do they shape the policies to make these people's lives better 
Um, let, let's come on to this kind of first of all this kind of precarious aspect. I mean, that's mm. quite a crucial thing, isn't it? You, and it's not just the jobs are precarious, but you, there's a statistic you have of like one million people are in ha, have parents or in families where one parent works at least one weekday. Mm. So they're anti-social hours as well. Mm. Yeah, I think that was a, one of the things that really struck me was. the new working class is a big grouping like I'm being sort of pretty upfront about the fact that I'm putting a lot of people together but you start to sort of pull that apart and actually you've got lots of different groups in it and I used the Great British Class Survey that the London School of Economics did a few years ago and they came up with different categorisations and they used this phrase the precariat and they it was originated by Guy Standing the academic and it was to describe uh, people who maybe in work but it's really really insecure work so it's not to say that all of this new working class are working like that but actually there is a section of society that actually is employed if they are employed are might be cycling perhaps in and out of poverty are certainly not enough were earning enough to save so they've got very little capital behind them that's really different to that traditional working class it also includes uh, in terms of this new working class what they called the emerging service workers. So much more diverse, possibly more likely to have a degree, a degree might even include a higher number of, of migrant workers, but those who are employed in that service sector, but again, not, not necessarily seeing kind of secure type of work. Um, and then it also includes other groups like slightly more uh, affluent, affluent workers are a bit sort of further up the chain. So, so the type of work people do is really interesting and very different but you're absolutely right that um, part of the purpose of the book is to say many of these people don't feel that any political party is speaking for them now I think we see that a lot in our political debate it is really dominated by the concerns of the affluent is my argument and you see that in a lot of the data that that you use that actually people feel the lower end you get on the income spectrum the less you feel represented by a political party and also you make the point that actually the greater your income, the more likely you are to be a member of a political party. So, so and do correct me if I get this wrong. I mean, so what you're suggesting is that we've had almost since post-war a the main political parties appealing to people in the centre ground, whether because that's they feel that's where the kind of the kind of the, the mass of the votes are, or because our electoral system relies on a few marginal seats to win or lose a, a, a government. And they have ignored the the others, or they just failed to connect with them, or is it a combination of both? I think they have. I think I couldn't say they've ignored them because actually many MPs of of all political parties will, on a day to day, week to week basis, be canvassing a lot of these voters. But I think at the centre, a lot of these parties have really tried to pitch to middle England, middle class voters. And I think that argument that New Labour used really powerfully during its ascendancy... This is going for Worcester Woman. The Worcester Woman, and and saying that society had changed, but the Labour Party hadn't changed with it. That is true. But what I'm arguing now is that the way that society has changed, it's the creation of a new working class, which is actually leaving them with with an electoral hole. So it's not quite that they've ignored these voters. It's just that they tried through the New Labour years to hold this alliance that Neil Kinnock and others have tried to put forward of the working class and this newer, more aspirational voter. And I think it's pretty clear that you can see from all of the data in this well predates Jeremy Corbyn, is actually those voters on the lower end don't feel very well represented by by the parties, but also in public life generally. 
Yeah, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit because at the end of the book, you also talk about how the kind of the public realm for working class people has has kind of almost not quite destroyed, but it's fallen apart in many respects. Whether it was the chapel or the affordability of going to a football match. Mm. Or the kind of the local kind of structures of government, which had gave them sort of some sort of buy-in to society, that that's disappearing. And at the same time, you've also got this problem of of another fascinating statistics. This is a really good book if you like stats. It was that the, the number of working class MPs has declined from being one third in the nineteen eighties to less than ten percent, fewer than ten percent now. Mm. So, is this part of a problem? Is that that they have no buy into political system they have nobody in the political system who speaks to them and and speaks of them is, is that fair i think that's fair and i think uh, what that describes is this this isn't just about politics i mean my interest and in my argument is about politics but it isn't just about politics it's more generally about about public life and i use football as an example which i had to get in somewhere which is just the way that families like working class families have been priced out of going to uh, the average the average game of a, of a premier league football team uh, if you look at kind of the way that you might spend Saturdays now, actually Saturdays for families can be really expensive. And so it's not just about politics. It's also symptomatic of a wider um, marginalisation, if you like, of the inclusion of people, whatever your income, you should be able to afford to be able to go and watch a football match, be able to have pastimes and leisure times like anybody else. But actually, as most families know, as many of your readers and listeners would know, actually that cost of school holidays, weekends, all those sorts of things are, you know, they're, they're really difficult. And so the focus of this book absolutely is about politics, but there's a wider issue about how uh, the market economy hasn't operated evenly for lots of different groups. So if you're um, advising a, a, a politician, and I should stress this is, this is not aimed at any one particular party, it's, it's a, a problem which faces all the major parties about how they connect and, and address the, 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 the problems this new working class have. In, what would you suggest to them they have to do in terms of, of actually kind of, kind of mending this relationship and making sure these people have better, richer, healthier, happier lives? So the problem, I think, for and you're right, it is about all the parties. The problem for most of the parties is that when they listen to these voters, I think my perception is that most of the parties listen to what they want to hear. And my plea to them is listen really hard to what voters are actually telling you. And it's not it, there's a bit about immigration, but it's not just about immigration. What I've done in the book is take all of the issues that all of these groups feel strongly about and then come up with the sorts of things that political parties could do. So if anything, the thing political parties need to do is stop talking to themselves so much and really listen to voters. And that's why the, the book has taken British social attitudes and all this attitudes data to say, what do people care about? What matters to them? And what would they like to see done about it? And I haven't done that from a party political point of view. I've based it around the values that I think uh, that the data shows have come through most strongly uh, in terms of what this, what the general public actually think, not just the new working class. And, and that's a key word from a book, values. Uh, and because you talk about actually what motivates people uh, is not what you think of as kind of say kind of a dry policy announcement or, or, or a specific issue like immigration mm. um, but much more you, you name the four values as fairness, family, hard work and decency and, and 
you're saying these are these are kind of almost universal, not but they're to all classes, but they're particularly strong in in this new working class. Is that right? They are they are universal to the general public. So I got this data from. So none of this that I've come up with essentially has been just because I think it or I feel it. It's all been based on looking at the best data that's available. I used the data that policy, the think tank Policy Exchange used when they were researching the case for the just about managing classes. They really focused on what you'd call C1, C2 voters, so people in that bang in that middle spectrum. What I did was look at the data for uh, what I'd call the new working class, so broadly people from middle to, uh, middle to the lowest section. But actually, I found that the values that were most important to them, as you say, family, fairness, hard work and decency, were also the values that were most important to all groups. So actually, there's a there's a no brainer there for the parties in that actually trying to root your policy framework more in what the public think rather than what your own party thinks could be a way of uh, breaking through to to these groups and, and connecting people back to politics. But this is also... What's so interesting I found about this is it's also a time where politicians are campaigning more in emotion than they are in that kind of traditional sense of here's my policy manifesto, take it or leave it. And you look at whether it's Donald Trump or, or Jeremy Corbyn here, they, they, they both talk much more, they campaign much more in kind of bright colours, uh, appealing to a, a, a emotions and values than, mm. than, than, let's say, whether you like the values or not in terms of Trump, than, than, than kind of a traditional way of campaigning. Uh, is there not a danger that, that of... Uh, what's the kind of that thin line between kind of uh, campaigning that way and stirring up nationalism and populism? Mm. Well, it's funny you should say that because actually one of the big motivations for writing the book was was the election of Donald Trump, actually, and the rise of populism across Europe. And I worried that parties, I mean, Labour in particular, was becoming more and more detached from social class. And the, the, my fear of the rise of populism and some of those approaches is how would you have a way of connecting people to policy and politics that was based in something that was, uh, was, was thoughtful and was not populist in the sense of just appealing to the masses. And that's why I've come up with that framework for the book. And I think there has to be a role for political leadership in it. But what I'm saying is that parties are too rooted in what their their own ideologies and what they think people need, rather than thinking through what matters to people. And when I looked at what matters to people, it's pretty bread and butter stuff. It doesn't really take you to a place of nationalism. I think that offers no solution, actually, to the uh, interests and concerns of people. People write about money and debt. They write about health. Immigration's in there too. They write about housing and work and caring for people. And those sorts of things, I think, are the sorts of things that parties just need to be able to cater for much better rather than this sort of... When they when the parties do try something which sounds nationalistic, it just turns off a load of voters because it can sound kind of anti-migrant or a bit backward-looking. So what this is trying to do is saying, well, how would you have a much more inclusive values-based politics? Yeah. And in terms of, of, of the EU referendum, did you see that as a, 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 a kind of a, this new working class finally having a voice? That, that one of the reasons that, that that Leave won was because this kind of neglected sector of society finally was given an opportunity, whether it was based on a false premise or not, um, to, to, to kind of you know speak as, as they wanted to speak. So. 
it was it was that that vote that has really put much more attention on the issues behind uh, what low income and lower income voters are feeling, and I think it has given more attention to the issue but I don't think much has come up in terms of what to do about it so unless if you are someone who believes that leaving the EU is going to answer all these voters concerns then then fine that's that's up to you my view is it's not going to necessarily answer all those issues whether we stayed in or out Europe is I wouldn't say neither here nor there but it's not the core issue that that is why people voted to, to leave um, there are a whole range of things going on. So that was the question that I really took is, if there are things that are going on for people that mean they feel less connected to what we might call the progress of society and they feel that disconnect, then why is that and what do you do about it? And that's what the book seeks to uh, seeks to try and find an answer to. And, and coming on from that, because then you've got into the 2017 general election and, and as you mentioned, Theresa May kind of tried to appeal to this kind of new working class. We've kind of limited success, though the Conservative vote amongst this, that group did go up slightly. And, and, and then you had, from the other side, Jeremy Corbyn uh, almost seeing that Labour became a kind of, kind of much more, or cemented its metropolitan roots rather than kind of managed to kind of reach out to its traditional heartlands. And, and, and do, do you, what lessons did you draw from the kind of 2017 result? Mm. That, that both parties, are, major parties, are failing, or so this what I'm talking about started well before Corbyn and May. So this has been a, a, a medium-term trend. So it, at least during the um, for the last sort of 15 years or so, uh, Labour's vote amongst working-class voters has declined, and the Tories have started to kind of go up. Theresa May did make a pitch, but she made it to working class voters. But I think she made it halfway during the election campaign. So it was quite late, really. And she made it to what I would call traditional working class voters. And the argument that I'm making to both the parties is society has changed massively. And neither of the parties have changed sufficiently with society. So the implications of that are either that there are votes and there are opportunities. If you're a conservative then there is an opportunity in terms of reaching out to these voters. If you are Labour, this is absolutely fundamental to who the Labour Party is. And if Labour don't capture larger chunks of this vote, I can't see how they can form a parliamentary majority. Which brings me to the issue of, of, of immigration, because it, in some ways it, it, it kind of encapsulates the, the bind Labour is in. But it also, interestingly, Windrush, I thought, posed interesting problems for the Conservatives because there's kind of, you know, if you if you take, let's say, the Conservatives first, their kind of anti-immigration rhetoric and a lot of their anti-immigration policies ha, ha, has kind of been kind of populist in some respects, but also they've now been hit with this backlash of people going, well, actually, it's reinforcing reputation as the nasty party and we like to see ourselves as a decent, tolerant country. And then for Labour, you've got almost the reverse of actually kind of holding back on any kind of tough immigration policy which is in danger of kind of alienating kind of traditional Labour supporters in some areas. It's a very tricky balance to get right, isn't it? It's really tricky. It's really tricky. And I think uh, that I'm very critical in the book of the notion that... I mean, you have to listen to voters, but I'm very critical in the book of the idea that voters didn't consent to the idea of there being some backlash against migrants who have been here for generations 
and I think it has been an astonishing really to see to to witness the um the kind of insularity of some of this like who was that trying to appeal to and why why would the government have thought that that was going to see them through the public has absolutely been giving a message about immigration and i haven't dodged that in the book i mean i've been quite clear that immigration absolutely is there amongst actually amongst middle income voters even more so than it is for, for lower or higher higher income voters but having those kinds of policies that create that hostile environment is not what voters are asking for when you look at the data of what what voters are concerned about with immigration by and large for low to middle income voters it's it's generally about um uh, generally about services so there's a public services element uh, and i make some recommendations there about how that can be made better but it's also about skills and about the country being able to set its policies its immigration policies according to the skills it needs there is nothing that I could detect that gave you the legitimacy to come up with some of those hostile environment policies. Um, and it will be really interesting to see where it goes next. But one of, the, one of the points I make in the book is why you have to understand there's a new working class and a, rather than a traditional working class. Is if you, if you just peel, try and appeal to one narrow group, you completely alienate other groups who are also part of this new working class. And that for me is a question about class as much as it is about people's politics. And, and just to follow on from what you said, the word skills um, leapt out to me because that's one of your key recommendations. And, I, and again, so I'm boring you of facts here, but I thought it fascinating was that we've had 28 different policies on higher education since the 1980s. And none of them has seems to have worked. And yet it's such an obvious area yeah. or, or, or actually if you want to improve people's lives, for those who don't take the academic route, there needs to be some form of, as you suggest, both lifelong learning, but also a much better further education, yeah. higher education. Yeah, course. and then this is in relation to further education. And, and it's a really interesting story that Rachel Wolfe, who uh, used to be an advisor to David Cameron, shared with the Institute for Government, uh, another, another think tank. And she said, kind of, did you know there had been, you know, 28 different pieces of uh, legislation reform around further education? But her take on the fact that that hadn't come to greater prominence was just that the, the children of the people who were dominating public life and politics weren't as affected by it. And now look at the 2017 general election and how much higher education formed a big part of that um, uh, that kind of campaign platform uh, for Labour in particular, when actually there are millions of young people growing up for whom further education, investing in further education is vitally, vitally important, but it just doesn't get the same kind of attention uh, as, as higher education. And that goes back to the point about who is our public life and our politics dominated by its concerns that... Um, might be more felt by people who are perhaps a little bit more affluent. So it's not to knock higher education, but it is to say that there, is, there, are, there are big areas of policy which are just not getting the same level of attention uh, and consistency and reform that they need. Uh, and one of the suggestions is, is that because, well, I would say some of that is because the people that are making those policies and who are writing about those policies are let, have less direct experience of what it's like to, to be in further education, to be putting kids through it, um, or depend on it. Thank you very much, by the way, for, for, for clearing up my messing up further in higher education. My apologies. So, no, no, and this is again, I thought it actually made quite uncomfortable reading for, for as a journalist. That you know, and, and uh, but it is also for as you, we talked about earlier for for politicians and for policymakers and advisors and anybody involved in 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 the in the Westminster sphere it, it, is that 
um, inability to, to put themselves in other people's shoes. And I'm just wondering, you know, will devolution help with that? Is that a way through the problem, or is it much more that we don't, they just need to get better at policy making and understanding how, you know, what are the essential policies? So, so devolution could be part of it, and I think I looked at data in Scotland, Wales, and in England for the book. Um, and in Scotland, there definitely is greater trust in the Scottish government. I would say, according to the Scottish government, there is greater trust in themselves than there is in the uh, UK government. So devolution, I think, can be part of the answer, but there's still a gap in terms of devolution in who's making the decisions at a local level and whether that's devolved truly to communities, which is why I think devolution can be part of it, but unless there is a greater restoration of some of the institutions and um, democratic institutions of people who might be considered working class, the risk with devolution is it just devolves power to newer elites at a, a regional level. I think that the rebuilding of uh, trade union organisations, of community organisations, all those things are really, really important, not just for, for workers themselves, but to give people more, to give organised labour more of a, a voice in, in, in public life. So I'm, I'm pro-devolution, but cautious that on its own, it actually doesn't, I think, really, in terms of democracy. The only way it'll, way it'll do, it, do something different in democracy is if those communities are organised and given routes in to be able to affect local decision making then it could be a really powerful way of reconnecting people yeah and and coming on to that because you, you you talk about the importance you know that trade unions and have but also the, one of the things you look at a lot is that is the changing nature of, of work but you know you've got the, the challenges of, of, of automation of, of technology you've got kind of the move to the gig economy and then you know, some positives as well. More women are in work, but they tend to be in actually lower-paid jobs. But it's still a positive. And I'm, and I'm just wondering, you know, have any of the major political parties grasped this yet, or, or, or are they just kind of, you know, Labour's kind of campaign of things like zero hours contracts um, to give them credit for that, but they, they don't seem to have realised how much work is is in this incredible state of flux Mm. i think they know it i think they know it otherwise why would theresa may have commissioned the taylor review so matthew taylor um leader of the uh, rsa did a really good piece of work on what what that would look like in in our modern economy but he hasn't had the backing to necessarily implement those policies so i do think that politicians are aware of it they could not be aware of it but i think I think politics has fallen behind what is happening more broadly in society and the economy and political parties don't really know what to do and we're not at a high point of them coming up with very good ideas about it and then when they do commission ideas they haven't really got the courage to to see that through. I I think there are areas where we probably do need a better and more robust approach to regulation in terms of the employment, um, employment rights and political parties are not quite sure where to go with that and I think with Labour I think they, they did speak to those issues around insecurity and zero hours contracts but they also need to find out how, what's their pragmatic way rather than they need to be a, a party that understands the modern economy and actually just abolishing zero hours contracts might actually end up having kind of perverse consequences so I don't think either of the leading political parties are in a um, brilliant state in terms of coming up with policies for the modern economy and this is part of what the pitch is 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 they should be thinking a bit more a bit longer term about those okay we're, we're running slightly out of time but just just very quickly put you on what you, you as i say you put forward proposals on 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 health education housing work the economy welfare um which kind of you know if you could kind of you know be 
Prime Minister for a day, which is the priority, which is the one you think is most important? The one I think is most important is boosting the regional economies and making the economy of the future much better balanced. I live in the north of England now. My kids are growing up in the north. I want them to say to me that they are going to Manchester or Newcastle or Leeds to get the best jobs rather than saying we're going to have to leave you, leave you up there, we're off to London. I think it is massively important to connect those those economies with a much more inclusive type of type of growth. I think that is absolutely fundamental. I think that our economy should be there to be making it work for our for our young people and for our needs as citizens. And that is where I would put most of my energy and my efforts if I was to take this agenda up. Okay. I'm, I'm just going to read the last paragraph of your book. <laughs> um, and it goes, the final warning of this book is to the political parties themselves. Today's political parties do not have an automatic right to exist. If the voices of this new working class continue to be crowded out of public life, there is no guarantee that these new societal dynamics will not find alternate means of expression. That's a little apocalyptic, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And do you want to expand Mm. on how deep your fears are and where this could go? So I think if you look at what's happening right across Europe and the United States, there is a rise of populism. And I think it would be arrogant of, uh, of us sitting here in Britain to reject that as a, as a, as a possibility. I think it's, it's unlikely. Uh, I think the two-party system is very, very strong. But I think if, if I was sitting in Labour's shoes, I think I would be worried about the threats that could come to that vote if it doesn't listen to this new working class and so I, I wouldn't necessarily say apocalyptic, but I think this is a, a warning sign to all the political parties. If they don't reconnect people back to politics, we could be uh, in more troubling times. And by troubling times? Uh, well, you've seen, well, the, I mean, certainly uh, the rise, the UKIP, the UKIP uh, rise didn't come to what it could have been in the 2017 general election. But it's not to say that you wouldn't have a rise of more more right-wing policies actually in terms of you've just seen what the government have been doing over the last few years around immigration so how if you don't answer some of those concerns if you don't listen to people what's the sort of climate so it could be about other parties but I think as much as anything it's about the kind of policy context and having uh, a policy context which is much more inclusive and forward-looking. Claire, that was really, really interesting. And as I've just said again, your book is The New Working Class, How to Win Hearts, Minds and Votes, published by, remind me, because I've forgotten. Policy Press. Published by the Policy Press. Um, The book launch uh, is this week, so we're looking forward to to doing that. Um, Please go to our website, uh, mirror.co.uk forward slash eyes, that's A-Y-E-S, where you can subscribe and leave comments. You can follow me on Twitter at, at JBTMirror and Claire is on Twitter at Claire with an I and an E underscore Ainsley A-I-N-S-L-E-Y. Thank you very much and it's a pleasure having you here and a really interesting discussion. Thanks Thank so you much. very much.